You're listening to the EU China podcast powered by the EU China Hub, straight from Brussels, a show on which we interview important actors in the EU China relations and cover the top EU China news. Our mission is to help you to get a more nuanced picture of what is going on in the EU China relations. My name is Greg Stetz and I'm happy to have you with us. If you like our show, don't forget to subscribe and to tell your friends about us. Let's get started. Hi, here comes the EU China news brief for January 28, 2020. In today's news, we cover Coronavirus strikes amid Chinese New Year. EU and China complete another round of BIT negotiations. Can an alliance including EU and China save WTO? Trump targets Europe at Davos Forum. Merkel and Macron call Xi Jinping. EU's Huawei toolbox about to go public. What do member states plan to do in the face of US-China rivalry? Enjoy! Coronavirus strikes amid Chinese New Year. Let's start with what happened. The virus was initially identified in Wuhan, the capital of Hubei province, and has been spreading rapidly reaching major mainland cities such as Beijing and Shanghai. According to the newest data from today, around 4,600 cases were confirmed in China and 50 outside of mainland China. We're talking here about Hong Kong, Macau, Taiwan, Thailand, United States, Canada, Australia, Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia and Nepal, as well as France and Germany. 106 people passed away due to the infection so far, and over 70 were confirmed as cured cases. The death rate is now estimated at between 2 and 3%, and particularly vulnerable are older people with compromised immunity system. Among them, the death toll is around 5 times higher than among young people. Overall, the virus seems as of now to be less deadly than SARS, the previous virus to put China on such a high alert. It havoc China in 2003 with a death toll of around 10%. But a big challenge in stopping the outbreak is that the symptoms can show up even two weeks after getting infected by the coronavirus. Also, unlike SARS, already during this incubation period, the virus can be transmitted to other people, and that makes an effective control extremely hard. The situation has been even more challenging given the period of the outbreak, which coincided with the Chinese New Year celebrations. And this is a period which features the largest reoccurring human migration in the world. And we're talking here about tens of millions of Chinese who are venturing back to their family homes for celebrations. So in relation to this situation, Chinese authorities imposed a travel ban covering 16 cities and affecting over 50 million people and citizens of Hubei province face additional restrictions when traveling. The virus has reached Europe already. Last Friday, French authorities confirmed that three people infected with the virus were identified in Paris and Bordeaux. Also, on Tuesday, a new case was confirmed in Bavaria, Germany. But according to WHO, the outbreak of the virus doesn't constitute public health emergency of international concern which means that WHO doesn't consider it a grave international threat. Also, during his meeting with Chinese officials in Beijing today, 
the Director General of WHO, expressed his confidence in China's ability to contain the situation. And he also said that evacuation of foreign citizens from China is not necessary. Of course, WHO continues to monitor the situation. Let's get some observations about what we've seen so far. So it's hard to give a straight comment to this situation. On one hand, back in 2003, during SARS outbreak, it took Chinese authorities months to admit the situation and to begin to cooperate with the WHO. This time, it took them less than a month, and the WHO director has actually voiced his approval for China's prevention measures. That's a clear improvement. On top of that, on January 26th, Chinese authorities prohibited wild animal trade in the country. And in my view, this is a very meaningful move, because consumption of wild animals, which still occurs in some places in China, for example, at exotic food markets, can lead to creation of new viruses. So this decision by authorities, if implemented properly, can significantly decrease the chances of a next similar outbreak. And of course, that's all positive. But having talked about the positives, let's take a look at the other side of the coin. So reports have emerged that Chinese authorities, initially on a local level, tried to downplay the situation in the period before the 20th of January, which is when an announcement by central government came and mobilized the country. It appears that the whistleblowers active before that date were being detained, and the local authorities did not take proper action to prevent the spreading of the virus, despite already knowing that it can be transmitted between people. So, for example, they allowed for a very large celebration, which involved sharing food, to proceed in Wuhan on the 18th of January, already knowing about the possibility of an outbreak of a virus. One additional comment which I came across, and which is interesting in regards to political dynamics, That is the fact that although it is President Xi Jinping himself who raised the call to action on January 20th, he appointed Premier Li Keqiang to head to Wuhan and to be the face of government's efforts to combat the virus. So the coronavirus case may yet have an impact on the top level of Chinese politics. If things go south, it's going to be Premier Li who is going to take the blame, as he's the one who is supposed to get the situation under control. If they manage to get the situation under control, it's going to be probably branded as success of central government, so primarily President Xi Jinping, who called for action. And that is relevant because Premier Li, although uninfluential in the face of Xi's personality cult, is still a voice generally supporting market reforms, that is put nominally in number two position in China. If he gets fully sidelined, it may further undermine the cause of China's market reforms. So, leaving all that aside, in the transcript you can find links to the sites monitoring the progress of the virus. And naturally, to wrap up this story, we wish everyone to stay safe and hope that the situation will get resolved quickly. EU and China complete another round of BIT negotiations. What happened? The EU and China completed the 26th round of negotiations of Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, also known as the EU-China Bilateral Investment Treaty, or EU-China BIT in short. 
This round took place in Brussels in two sessions, one between 16th and 17th and another between 20th and 21st of January 2020. The two sides worked through the newest offers made in December 2019 and discussed such issues as ensuring a level playing field for EU-China cooperation and the position of SOEs in this context. According to the announcement by the European Commission, quote, further work was done on sustainable development, notably on climate, and discussions continued on labor-related provisions and mechanisms to resolve differences in this area, end of quote. The next round is set to take place between 4th and 6th of March in Beijing. So what is it all about? The BIT agreement between the EU and China is set to replace the individual bilateral investment promotion and protection agreements which China has with individual member states. Currently, that would be 26 BITs, as Belgium and Luxembourg have a joint agreement and Ireland doesn't have a BIT with China. Such national BITs cover issues related to investment protection and dispute settlement. So to put it simply, they are aimed at providing a framework for a smoother exchange of mutual investments. The BIT negotiations between the EU and China have been going on since 2013 and are a truly complex process. The EU-China BIT has to unite the interests of all EU members who will have their national BITs replaced. And on top of that, it is wider in scope because aside from the usual content, it will deal with a very big issue, market access. And that is a very problematic point, as China pursues very different investment policies, more selective than the EU. And that comes in the form of negative lists or requirements put on foreign companies to enter into joint ventures with Chinese partners, all part of China's foreign investment law. This is naturally hard to accept for the EU, whereas China regards it as a legitimate attempt to protect its economy as, according to China, it is still a developing country. Agreeing on the scope of EU-China BIT took almost three years, and in mid-2018, the Chinese side put forward its proposal. But according to the EU Commission, China's proposal only reiterated the country's commitments derived from its other obligations, so for example, those of a WTO member, and it didn't include additional commitments. Tough negotiations followed, and the process has been slow. In December 2019, EU's Director General for Trade, Sabine Weyand, even called the BIT's negotiations as moving at, quote, snail's pace, end of quote. These comments were criticized by Beijing's envoy to the EU, Mr. Zhang Ming, who further called for, quote, meeting each other halfway, end of quote. But on January 20th, Commissioner Hogan seems to have alluded to that statement, saying that, quote, meeting halfway will not work for the EU, end of quote, given that the EU and China have unequally open markets and that this asymmetry poses the challenge. The process of making the BIT happen has not been easy and it remains to be seen whether the two sides can sign the agreement by the end of 2020 as they declared. Let's jump in with some comments here. So, in my view, the problematic progress on EU-China BIT negotiations clearly shows the underlying problem, which is the difference coming from EU's commitment to market economy and China's commitment to state capitalism or party capitalism. To meet the demands put forward by the European Union, 
China would have to adjust the way it governs its economy. And it is hard to be optimistic about the EU's success in this regard, given the trajectory of changes in China. Under President Xi Jinping, China has been undergoing centralization with growing direct and indirect involvement of the party in the economy and with increasing support for state-owned enterprises. And those trends are partially related to China's economic slowdown, which made Beijing pursue a more hands-on approach in the economy through such programs as Made in China 2025 or the Shuangchuang, so innovation-focused campaigns aimed at stimulating the economy. Also, the Belt and Road Initiative helps the Chinese government to coordinate its economic actors from central level. All in all, it's not really market-focused. Of course, it is important to point out the positive changes that were accomplished in recent years, such as increasing the number of sectors in which foreign investments are allowed through the so-called negative lists. We have also seen China make an incredible jump of 47 positions in the World Bank's Ease of Doing Business Index between 2018 and 2020 as the country moved from 78th position to 31st position. But let's say that overall, in BIT negotiations on market access and level playing field, the EU is facing a partner that has a different system and the two systems are currently diverging, not converging. At the same time, it seems that a high-pressure approach, which is what President Donald Trump is trying to apply, has so far had limited results. The phase one has not brought meaningful benefits for the US in the larger scheme of things. Of course, the EU should continue to encourage China to pursue market reforms, ideally without using a patronizing tone, and it should consider tougher stance on reciprocity, for example, through mirroring some of the restrictions that the EU companies have to face in China. But it is important to be clear about what is the end goal for creating an even playing field in the EU-China economic cooperation. Is it about China changing its regulations in general, Or is it about China changing its practices towards European companies? Is it about values and models we believe in and want to promote? Or is it about pragmatism and business we want to make? But back to the BIT 2020, what signals should we keep an eye on? I think that there are a couple of things to look out for. The first one is of course Huawei. The decision of EU member states on whether or not to ban the Chinese tech giant from rollout of European 5G will definitely have a major impact on BIT negotiations this year, as China clearly indicates that market access for its tech companies is a key point for BIT in Beijing's view. The second thing to look out for is more obvious, and by that I mean the discussions during the EU-China summit by the end of March in Beijing and the EU27 plus China summit in Leipzig later in the year. Particularly this second event may play an interesting role in my view. Of course it is not an EU event and we haven't seen the agenda yet, but I think that this is an event that has the potential to create a political momentum for forwarding the negotiations on BIT. It is going to come during German presidency And it is promoted by Chancellor Merkel, who is clearly set on engaging China, as we will discuss later today. Finally, the third element is the United States and its president. For one, if the EU does become the next target of Donald Trump, which he suggested in Davos, the European bloc will be put at disadvantage in BIT negotiations. 
So transatlantic deal, uh, which we will discuss again today uh, a little bit later, will also be a factor. But so will the outcome of the US elections, which will play a role here. Re-elected Trump may return to pressuring China, albeit also poses risk of increasing tensions with the EU, whereas a democratic president is more likely to cooperate with the European Union. Whether 2020 deadline for BIT can be met remains to be seen. Can an alliance including EU and China save WTO? What is it generally about? The WTO dispute settlement mechanism has been paralyzed since December 2019 due to the United States blocking of all nominees to the seven-member appellate body panel. Since December 11th, the body only has one active member and three is the lowest number required for the body to sign off rulings. It is the highest level of appeal in the WTO dispute settlement mechanism and without it, the entire mechanism becomes unoperational because any trade dispute can end up in a limbo with no institution to take the final appeal. Some have even dramatically called it the death of WTO. So what happened? On January 24th in Davos, Commissioner Hogan announced that the European Union and 16 countries, including China, are devising a temporary solution to the WTO crisis. The solution is based on Article 25 of the Dispute Settlement Understanding, which allows the countries to apply voluntary arbitration in dispute settlement. Under such an approach, the aforementioned countries can simply voluntarily agree that the disputes between them, at least until further notice, will be run by the appellate body as if the crisis didn't occur. The agreeing parties are the EU, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, Guatemala, South Korea, Mexico, New Zealand, Norway, Panama, Singapore, Switzerland and Uruguay. It is important that China is on board as it is involved in a large portion of trade disputes. Naturally, the US is not planning to participate in this mechanism, meaning that any trade disputes that President Donald Trump may choose to pursue still cannot be resolved through WTO mechanisms. At the same time, President Trump is planning to move swiftly with proposal towards reforming the WTO. He recently announced that within the next two weeks, Director General of the WTO, Roberto Azevedo, will travel to Washington to discuss the potential changes to WTO. Trump targets Europe at Davos Forum. So what happened? On January 22nd at the Davos World Economic Forum, President Donald Trump targeted Europe, despite previous signs of de-escalation which we covered in the last week's news brief. So the tensions are related to the EU's support for Airbus, trade barriers and plans to impose taxes on digital services, which would primarily affect American tech giants. France's recent plans to impose 3% digital tax were met with American threats to subject the French imports worth of 2.4 billion US dollars to 100% tariffs. The two sides both agreed to suspend those plans. But in Davos, President Trump went into offensive, threatening to impose up to 25% of tariffs on imports of vehicles from the EU, despite the fact that the tariffs in this case would have to be announced by last November, according to American regulations. All that in order to put pressure on the EU in the context of a new transatlantic deal. 
As President Trump clearly stated, quote, Ultimately, it will be very easy because if we can't make a deal, we'll have to put 25% tariffs on their cars, end of quote. But things may not go that far, as President of the European Commission Ursula von der Leyen said at Davos Forum that she shared a good conversation with President Trump and stated, quote, We are expecting in a few weeks to have an agreement that we can sign together, end of quote. The agreement, which is to focus on trade, technology and energy, is to be reached this spring, with a goal of signing a full trade agreement by November. This is all relevant in the context of EU-China-US triangle, but let's return to this in the next news bites. Merkel and Macron call Xi Jinping Last Wednesday, Chancellor Angela Merkel and President Emmanuel Macron had each exchanged phone calls with President Xi Jinping. Over those two calls, Xi Jinping signaled his hopes that 2020 will be a year of new developments in EU-China relations. According to reporting by Stuart Lau, Xi mentioned climate change, WTO reform and global economic governance as the key common ground issues. Both German and French leaders made comments that suggest that they will not advocate for a ban on Huawei in their respective countries. President Macron stated, quote, I wish to reiterate that on the question of 5G, France will not impose any discriminatory policies against any specific country or company, end of quote. He also stated his interest in organizing another visit to China. In her Davos speech, Chancellor Merkel said, quote, We Europeans must be wisely reflecting how we can deal in this digital age with Chinese products and offerings and weigh very carefully whether we wish to decouple ourselves from the Chinese value chain, end of quote. In Davos, Merkel also expressed her hopes to formalize regular EU-China conversations, which she hopes to start with Leipzig Summit. So a quick comment here. Naturally, all the previous three news bites are intertwined. The triangle of EU-China-US relations is being redefined in one of its most profound aspects, which is trade, but the impact will be much broader, strategic, if you will. Merkel and Macron are, of course, not the EU, but equally obviously those two European leaders do politics not only on a national but also European scale. So I guess in relation to the other news related to WTO, related to the transatlantic deal, what we're seeing here is the European leaders trying to shape the European strategic independence or strategic autonomy, if you will. So finding the European position that will be distinct from that of US and China without fully aligning with either of them. And it seems that 2020 will be the year for it with both deals coming into place. At the end of this show, I will bring up a report that discusses wider positions of different EU member states on this issue. Stay tuned. EU's Huawei toolbox about to go public. What happened? The European Commission is set to publish the toolbox for mitigating the risk associated with rollout of 5G technology on January 29th. According to information available, the toolbox will not contain decisive measures which would push the member states to allow Huawei to participate in the 5G rollout or to ban its equipment. But the toolbox will likely provide member states with a framework to exclude Huawei from their infrastructure should they choose so on the basis of their own risk assessments. 
We covered the wider picture of the 5G issue in the news brief from January 13th, and we'll surely return to this topic in the next news brief to analyze the toolbox. The United Kingdom has made its decision today, allowing the UK mobile operators to use Huawei equipment in their 5G networks, with exclusion of the company from the security-critical core areas, according to a statement that was released by the UK government. This is of course a big win for Huawei, and we'll see what the reaction from the United States is going to be. We will surely cover it together with the EU 5G toolbox next week. But a quick comment here. My opinion remains the same as last year, so that the EU-level discussion on 5G is going to be aimed at providing the member states with a standard-based narrative. So to give the member states the potential to frame Huawei exclusion or inclusion as a result of a standard-based approach rather than a political decision. This could be leveraged in managing the impact of the decision to include or exclude Huawei on tensions with the US or China that can arise from either of those decisions. So I think we may see a decision of exclusion of Huawei from core networks like we saw in the United Kingdom, but at large the company will be free to operate at European markets. Of course, none of the European member states has such a telecommunication cybersecurity facilities as the United Kingdom, but let's just wait with any further comments till next week. What do member states plan to do in the face of US-China rivalry? To wrap up this episode, I want to bring to your attention a recent report released by the European Think Tank Network on China, which connects national EU think tanks working on China. The report is called Europe in the Face of US-China Rivalry and contains insights from 18 member states and also recommendations for EU level. According to overall findings, all the analyzed countries are trying to balance their relationships with the US and China, attaching high value to military protection from the former and economic cooperation with the latter. Given the tensions between the two, finding the balance is really hard to achieve, as it is for example exemplified by Huawei debate. And it appears that in this context, the concept of strategic autonomy is gaining traction. But I just want to leave it here and you can find a link to the report in the transcript of this episode. And that's it for this news brief. Unfortunately, we didn't manage to cover the recommendations from Business Europe report, which we highlighted last week, but we'll return to this topic in future episodes. As you might have noticed, we are experimenting with the format, balancing between reporting and sharing opinions. As we are still developing our own strategic balance, let us know what you like and dislike about our format. Any comments, much appreciated. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the EU China podcast. If you want to know more or to get in touch with us, visit our website, which is euchinahubwrittenjointly.com. And if you find this show insightful, be sure to leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It will help others to get to know about us. See you next time.